0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is the amazing Kevin Busky, founder and CEO of Guideline, a modern 401k provider for small businesses. Under Kevin's leadership, Guideline has grown to be the retirement plan of choice for more than 20,000 small businesses, amassing more than $4 billion in assets under management, and raising over $140 million in equity from top industry investors. Kevin founded Guideline after seven years as a co-founder at TaskRabbit, another massively successful business that was acquired by IKEA in 2017. I also want to extend a special thank you to Professor Adam Grant for his help in making this episode a reality where we discuss Kevin's background and how his upbringing led him down the path of entrepreneurship, launching guidelines from a house garage and some of the challenges from their early days, navigating the pandemic and why they had no idea how it would affect their business. The surprising effect of the pandemic had on retirement savings rates in the US, increasing from eight to 12%. Kevin's philosophy around culture and why he does not like to take an active role in dictating company culture, valuable reflections for entrepreneurs, and the importance of always doing the hard things first, and just a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Kevin Busky. Well, Kevin, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Welcome, how, how are you today?
1: Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I'm uh, in my home office, also my garage.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you, you are literally an entrepreneur working out of his garage.
1: Yep, and, and funny enough, guidelines started out of a, a garage as well back in the day. So much so, even one of our partners are like, "Hey, those guys got to move. They love the product, but you got to move out of the garage because we can see the garage door."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to hear more about that. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, talk about those those early days, right, and starting
1: out of a garage. Yeah, early days was really like. In my kitchen, and we took a year to build our first product. So we're, we're a software company, reg tech company, fintech, et cetera. So, but it took us a year, a little bit over a year to build our first product because we started at the very bottom building something called record keeping. So we started there and it took quite some time. So we didn't need an office space. There's just three of us morphed into about six or seven by the time we were uh, just about to release product. So yeah, started my kitchen, and then we got an office, got some seed funding, raised a tiny amount on a note, $2 million note from NEA and Lira Hapu. And then finally got our our first office, and it was an office that was ground floor, downtown San Mateo, pretty close to where YouTube started, actually. And then, uh, yeah, it happened, the conference room was the garage bay so that's where you would take all your meetings because you could close off to the other folks in the office who were you know, on the phones, et cetera. But you could see the garage door in the background. So eventually when we were doing video calls and all that, it was like, you got to move offices because we can see the garage door. <laughs> it was before Zoom had that like opaque uh, blur to the background.
0: That's funny. Yeah, yeah, those backgrounds help. I know people who are traveling the world but no one knows because it's always the same background.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool.
0: And and Kevin, so maybe that's super interesting to know, but I I wonder where does that entrepreneurial bug come from? I know that you you've previously mentioned publicly that, you know, since childhood you you've had to figure out how to basically, you know, make make something for yourself, right? Yeah. And then you're a pretty independent person. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that background and, and about the entrepreneurial bug.
1: Sure. I grew up in the military. My father was in army intelligence. Uh, so I've lived all over the world as a young child. My mother stayed at home, took care of me and my brother. And you know, one of the things growing up in the military is you have a lot of people around you constantly. You live on a military base, So you learn respect, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to provide for yourself pretty quickly. Otherwise it becomes a hard childhood otherwise. So yeah, that's kind of been, you know, just ingrained in in who I am since, you know, a super small, small child and move schools every other year. Uh, So you learn how to make new friends, you learn how to adapt to new environments, whether you're on a military base or you're off campus, so to speak, learning, you know, just just kind of the ropes and how to deal with people in life. Um, and I think that's made me, you know, who I am and my biggest strength, I think, really is being adaptable. and certainly well as being an entrepreneur, I, but I think the drive for entrepreneurship overall is really just about things not being provided to me that I wanted. And it's not that we were incredibly poor or lower income. You know, my father was a, in the military, so we had a constant... Uh, Paycheck, and you know, we weren't worried about food or anything like that. But if I wanted something in life, a new computer, a car, or anything like that, I had to provide it myself. So it's really kind of a means to an end, right? Like if uh, you have a goal, you set a goal, how are you going to get there? If somebody's not going to help you out, you got to figure it out. So I think that is kind of what served me well and sort of instilled that entrepreneurial spirit. I, I started my first company actually in eighth grade, and then did custom computer services for local colleges and network services and you know all the geeky IT stuff that you could think of for real estate agents and all that sort of stuff. And that paid for anything I really wanted. I think I made $60,000 my junior year of high school uh, just doing stuff like that. And it was like, all right, you know what? I can just keep doing this and really got into building software later in life. After IBM, I, I spent a fair amount of my early career at IBM, and just realized, hey, you know, I have a lot of opinions, not necessarily able to share them in the best way to get management to do what I wanted to do. So, kind of became my own boss, and and really, that's been the story since uh, for quite some time now.
0: Yeah, I can actually uh, relate to some of the things you're mentioning because I, I also grew up moving around the world, right? And you just you got to make friends, right? And then the what worked in the past out. place doesn't work in the new one.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah,
0: and so mm-hmm. talking specifically about guideline, right? I mean, maybe you can tell us what are some of the big problems that you're trying to solve? Because I know the company has been having some impressive growth, so you're clearly tackling some big pain points.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So 401k or retirement savings as it relates to being employer sponsored has been largely underserved in the United States for the last 40 years. And it's really systemic and and a problem with the legacy institutions. So when you think about 401k, you know, what comes to mind is companies like IBM and Google, and it's a big benefit. It's super scary, really expensive, but really the underlying ecosystem there is based on assets Right, So like if you're a big company, you have a lot of employees, you have a lot of contributions, you have a lot of assets under management or plan assets. That's typically how 401k companies monetize. So they take a percentage of your assets annually. It's not the company's assets. It's actually the employee's assets, which is kind of like the issue, right? When you're trying to save for employees are trying to save for retirement, yet the company offers a benefit that the employees pay for. Out of their own assets you kind of miss the point altogether. so really what we did is look at that ecosystem and figure out who's truly adding value to a 401k product and it's not these 401k companies that are you know ripping fees out of employee assets there's really no value there and they do it on such a weird basis they do it and they hide the fees right so like they'll get paid by uh, fund companies with like 12b1 fees They'll get paid on a per seat basis where they're not even the record keeper. They'll get paid on assets under management for having something called the fund menu or like investment manager, yet you get a target date fund, right? Like that makes no sense whatsoever. What value are you bringing, enabling you to charge a fee on top of the money and you're not doing any of the work? So we just looked at that from the very lowest point possible, which is record keeping Started building our own record keeper because we didn't want... If you if you have a relationship with an existing record keeper, they're going to charge you a per-seat basis, but also, again, this asset-based fee on top of it. So as soon as you open sort of like the trunk, the Komodo to that, you're going to be stuck paying asset-based fees for the entirety of your business. And that's where all the legacy providers are now. So we just built our own stack. So we started with record keeping. We're the 316... Uh, which is the plan administrator. So from record keeping all the way up to we deliver an end product experience, we own it. That's 100% our software. It's our solution. You have a problem. You're coming to guideline. We're not pointing you somewhere else. And really, you know, people just understand that. And, and it's a unique offering in the marketplace for small businesses. But the main thing that it allows us to do is offer access to these programs, to small businesses that have never had a 401k before. So if you look at a Fidelity or something like that, they don't want your business because you don't have assets, right? So they can't monetize you. So we charge, just like Google, just like Slack, software as a service per seat basis. You use the product, you pay us. You don't use the product, you don't pay us. So if you have 10 employees and only seven of them, Use our product, you pay for the seven. You're not charging you for the other three. So we just aligned incentives finally in a 401k product. We charge a per se basis. We don't charge for investment management. You get a model portfolio appropriate for retirement. And away you go. And we handle all the integration with payroll, et cetera. So that's really the unique solution. But the number one problem we're solving is that access problem. And that's why you see all these state programs now that are coming out and saying like, oh, California has Cal Savers, Oregon has Oregon Saves. It's because they're trying to solve that same problem where small businesses don't have access to a retirement product. We just have the private market solution, which we think is much better than an IRA. Um, It's, you know, 401ks have different contribution levels, all that sort of stuff.
0: It reminds me a lot of some fintech infrastructure B2B companies that we've talked to that you know they start offering this to smaller companies, startups, you know, up and coming fintechs, and then they graduate to mid-sized institutions, and then they go you know for the large ones. Would that be a strategy that that you guys are thinking about? You start with the the small ones, but then you graduate or start including larger companies.
1: Absolutely. So we won't focus on selling to larger companies. When you think about what it takes to sell to a larger company, and and just to start, like, if you're over 100 people, it's very, very likely that you already have a 401k product, right? So you're talking about selling away from another company that may be a Fidelity or something like that. It's great brand knowledge great sort of brand awareness rather, so Fidelity or Vanguard or something like that. That's going to be a six-month sales cycle, probably 10 steak dinners, huge commissions to Salesforce. Like That's just not who we are. That's not in our DNA. So for us, we really want to focus on companies that have never had a 401k product before. 93% of all of our customers have never had a 401k. So again, really focusing on that access gap but that isn't to preclude us from servicing larger companies. Our largest company is 1,800 people. I wouldn't call that a small business anymore. I run a, you know, guidelines 205 people. I don't consider us a small business either. But, you know, our focus and our sales motion, our partnerships are all in and around small business, and we're going to continue to maintain our focus on that ecosystem. But as you grow, we have great customers that have grown hundreds of percent year over year. They're still with guideline. It's pretty hard to take a product like guideline where an employee isn't actually paying for the benefit, and then switch them over to somebody and be like, oh, by the way, you're gonna pay 1.5% annually for the same benefit, right? So like, it's a pretty hard conversation to have with your employees. So we like to get in early and those companies grow over time and we're the record keepers. So we have all the data in the world where we can give them all the financial reports that their CFO may need down the line, et cetera.
0: So over 200 people today, but of course you started with just, you know, just you and your, your initial team. What were your biggest challenges at the beginning you know, those first few months and, and later on?
1: Yeah, it's really the complexity of 401k. People think you take money and then you invest it. And that's not really the case. I would say, you know, our product engineering, our product roadmap is so much reg tech, just as much reg tech as it is FinTech. Yes, we do all the investment choice. We do all the clearing and like through a custodian, et cetera. And that's complicated. But what's more complicated is Arissa in the IRS regulations and then Department of Labor and <laughs> like all of those things, super difficult. So actually my first employee that was not a co-founder wasn't an attorney. And she just kept us, you know, on the right track, delivering the right things, trying to stay in front of all the regulation. And you gotta do that right because you'll lose trust so quickly. So I would say like building that and taking Arissa which is sort of the regulation that governs us as a RIA or 401k provider, rather, is very difficult. So we had to essentially productize not only the IRS code 401k, but also ERISA and what the Department of Labor had to say about, you know, auto enrollment and like all of these sort of plan level features. Very, very difficult to do. It's taken a very long time to get it right.
0: One of the topics that I I know you've recently been talking about is the effect that the pandemic has had on 401ks, uh, right? And of course, this has directly uh, affected you. You know, maybe talk about that experience going through the pandemic, uh, providing an asset that is quite important for people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the pandemic was, for guideline, just a giant question mark. We had really no idea how it was going to affect our business. We sell to small businesses. It's all over the news. Small businesses are struggling. And that's extremely true. You know, I see it everywhere. I live in, in downtown San Mateo. Lots of, you know, small businesses have closed shop. They don't look like they're coming back anytime soon. Those are our customers, right? So what precluded us from actually having a disastrous year, and actually we more than doubled last year. So I can say like, with I'm so grateful but there we've definitely taken and captured some of the strength of the small business community. We don't have a lot of retail exposure and we don't have a lot of food service exposure. So when you think about small businesses and everything you see on the news, you know, that's a very small percentage of our business overall. But what we did what we are exposed to a lot and more than 50% of our customers are in professional services. So these are businesses that are naturally able to go remote. So a lot of them have been quite successful. We've seen a lot of companies grow, not at the levels of the pre-pandemic. We had an NRR of about 140% pre-pandemic. It's slowly coming back to that. It's still above 100%, but it's slowly creeping up. So as you know, you see the hiring and all that sort of stuff increase, that's also affecting our business. But we have a, so much professional services And what those companies are doing are thinking about things like, all right, nobody's in the office. We're not providing lunches. We're not providing coffee. We're not providing all of these perks, right? In Silicon Valley, in New York, East Coast, everybody has these perks, these office perks, right? whatever they may be. They're not doing that anymore. So what are they doing to provide better outcomes for employees? They're adding new benefits like 401k. And 401k is one of those great benefits where it doesn't matter where you live. If you're in the United States, I don't care what state you're in, you can get the same benefit for that employee that can be distributed, that can be in the office, it really doesn't matter. So, And it happens to be the second most requested benefit next to health care. Um, and it's actually simpler than healthcare. Like healthcare has those state requirements, right? So like you have to have enough people in a certain state or you have to go with a national chain. So all of those costs get additive when you're talking about uh, distributed workforce, but not so in 401k. So, and our product is just so inexpensive at eight bucks per person per month. It's kind of a no brainer. So we've definitely seen our sales cycle shrink we have seen people add more and more people are not talking to anybody online. They're just adding the benefit. They go to guideline eight minutes later, they have, you know, they have a 401k set up and connected to payroll. So it's super easy. It's really straightforward. So we've been really lucky, I would say, compared to a lot of other startups with the pandemic and sort of what we've been able to capture. Right time, right place for us, for sure.
0: And how about the, the savings rate? Have you seen yeah. 401k holders uh, kind of, you know, take it up uh, and start saving more?
1: It's been amazing to see, actually. So we started somewhere around 8%. Pre-pandemic was sort of the contribution percentage rate, 8%. We've seen that creep all the way up to almost 12.5% in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and I think, again, people are saving money. They're not commuting. They're not paying for tolls. They're not paying for gas. They have other income. They're staying at home more. They're probably doing more grocery delivery, more eating at home. So they have more cash. And we've seen them inject that cash into 401k and for retirement savings. I think also the stimulus has helped. That's cash flow that people weren't expecting. It's definitely, I would say, it's probably the opposite effect. I think people are saving it. We know that in the data, right? Like savings rates overall have increased not just 401k, but it's great to see. It also helps that we're still in this amazing bull market for the last, gosh, was was it 12 years now? Pretty amazing time to be investing. So again, like right time, right place, but we also have, you know, the right product and it's easy to understand and able to, you know, deliver what people are expecting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, probably most of our U.S. listeners uh, either are familiar or have a 401k, right? But it varies how each company incentivizes employees to do it. And and there's matching, different sorts of matching that companies can do. What are you seeing around that?
1: Yeah. So about 60% of our companies offer some level of matching. It doesn't have to be, you know, something that's detrimental to the small business. It can get expensive. It can get very expensive, to be honest. But yeah, we, we see a lot of Our companies offer a match. We see more than 50% of our companies have what's called a safe harbor program or plan. It's a, a way that the IRS and the Department of Labor allow you to circumvent testing for your plan so that everybody in your company can save at the max rate. It's called a safe harbor plan, but it requires a fairly hefty contribution as far as matching. So 3%, 4% for everybody allows you to have a, a safe harbor plan. So we see that as becoming a more and more popular choice for everybody and companies, again, saving money and willing to increase match. So it's, it's great overall for the U.S. population.
0: That's great. And, and so, Kevin, I know that you think about company culture, right, as, as something important. And, and in fact, you know, the, the person who made this podcast possible is Professor Adam Grant. And he's one of the, you know, loudest advocates for, you know, paying attention to company culture. And, you know, I know you're close to him, he's close to guideline. Maybe talk a bit about the company culture that you've built and continue to build.
1: Yeah, you know, company culture for me is definitely one of those things that I constantly think about. But I also don't like to take... An active role in dictating what that should be. I know there's a lot of companies that go out and are very specific about what they want in the company culture. They blast you with all the mission stuff all over the walls. They hit you over the head with it every day. But I think the company needs to speak for itself, right? People understand what we're doing, why we're in this industry. The mission is very important to us to give a benefit to employees that where we can actually affect retirement outcomes for the larger us population so i think the company's mission needs to speak for itself it can't be artificial like be a good neighbor and like all this kumbaya stuff like that works for a very short period of time and people get over it really quickly that's why we don't have all of those office perks right there's no massage chairs. There's no like, you know, crazy stuff that happens in Silicon Valley, right? So like we don't have that stuff and that's intentional. So I would say I'm intentional about the culture, but it's very much like we want to hire the right people that believe in the mission, that have an interest in personal finance, that have an interest in customer care or something like that. It's not necessarily like, hey, we need to be a family or we need to all have each other's backs all the time. Like we wanna have hard conversations. We wanna give important feedback. And Adam goes into this all this all the time, right? And it's about the delivery of it. But you gotta be able to have those conversations because otherwise I think people will you know, generally be unhappy long-term. And if you're unhappy long-term, like life is short, find another company that you truly believe in. And I really, really embrace that. Find a leader, find a company that, you know, you can't have that passion for. I don't need to force that on you. I think that would be a terrible thing for me to do to try to incentivize people to stay at guideline uh, if they're not happy with the culture that we've built. But overall culture is very high performance We work hard, we play hard, but overall, like I'm not beating you over the head with uh, all these, uh, you know, mission statements and all of that sort of stuff. But I am very specific about what I like and what I don't like. And I think that comes across in sort of the hiring process, what we offer for benefits, not perks. Uh, we offer great benefits, not like perks that are you know people get over very quickly. So yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. But I've been in Silicon Valley. I you know I founded another company where we very much were let's dictate culture, let's have things all over the walls. Let's have all these crazy perks and like fun things in the office where people end up hanging out and all of that sort of stuff. And that's great. But also, you know, I have a life I have two young kids i want to go to work i want to get my job done i want to work really hard and then i want to go home and have time with my kids and all that sort of stuff it doesn't need to be all encompassing where the company is responsible for 100 percent of your happiness um, i think the company should provide meaningful wages and meaningful work and should be proud of that company but you should also have a life somewhere else and i, I try to cultivate that
0: so kevin i'm i'm very much enjoying this conversation. I, I really hope this is not the last time we speak. And, and so assuming, you know, we talk again in, you know, a few years, I'm not going to say a number, but a few years from now, what kind of progress would you consider a success, both for guideline and for the industry?
1: Yeah, our, our goal really is to become sort of the default 401k for small business, whether it's connected through Intuit or Gusto or Zenefits or something like that, where you can't make a bad choice. And if you look at how we deliver product, even to a participant, everything in our fund menu is appropriate for retirement. We're not going to let you make an inappropriate choice. And that's really what retirement's all about. Like. We believe in model portfolio theory. So diversify broadly, keep your fees as low as possible and invest over 20 or 30 years. We know that is the recipe for success in retirement. We don't need to reinvent that wheel. What we need to do is keep our costs as low as possible and deliver a seamless product experience, both for the plan sponsor and for the participant. And that's what will breed success for guideline. It's very simple, a very simple business. As far as what's next for a guideline, we actually just closed, I can't disclose it yet, but we just closed a massive round of funding. Congrats. Where, you know, we're fully in control of our own destiny. We can pretty much do whatever we need to do at this point. We can direct list. We got plenty of capital to do that. We can go a traditional IPO route. I've been approached by numerous backs. We're not going to go that route because we're not ready for it yet. Becoming a public company is more than a funding event. You have to be structured correctly. Otherwise, that's going to be a disaster. So we won't do that yet. But, you know, in three to five years, we'll absolutely be a public company one way or another.
0: So I think this whole episode is a class for entrepreneurs, right? But specifically, you know, thinking about the segment of the audience that is thinking about launching a company or actually is in the process of building, right? What are some... Reflections or piece of advice you'd like to share
1: with them? I think about this more than I probably should, but it, I think when I think of guideline success, it's really about doing the hard things first. Like that first year, that first year and a half, really set us up for success. It's very difficult to compete with guideline on price because we own our own software. It's very difficult to compete with us on business model, again, because we own our own software and have all of these, you know, we have a technical moat, we have a regulatory moat, and then we have a business model moat as well. So like, I would say focus really hard on those, you know, focus very intensely on building hard things first that will give you your advantage. Don't go to market quick and, and silly and like, have all of, like, you're going to do everything all at once and, like, have all of this underlying existing legacy infrastructure that you depend on. I think that's a terrible uh, terrible way to, to go to market. You have to be differentiated because it will give you the flexibility you need, the, again, the adaptability as a startup, to make those changes on the fly. You've got to be able to do that. So I would say that's number one. And then the one common thing that I see, and I'm starting to become, you know, more and more advising young companies, even doing a little bit of investing myself in young companies and young entrepreneurs. The whole idea of a stealth startup is absolutely baffling to me. I think that you should be talking to absolutely everybody you can. Imagine if I'd never talked to Adam Grant that one time. like He knew all about guidelines. We had the most uh, beneficial conversation I've probably ever had early on, talking to him on a chairlift, randomly, right? Like, if I was in stealth mode, I don't even know that we'd be friends. He probably thought I'd be the most boring person possible. So you got to talk about it. And look, if you can't defend your idea when you come to market, like that whole first mover advantage thing, I think it's way overemphasized. You need to have those technical modes. You need to have those business model modes. If you're going to get absorbed or surpassed by a competitor because they went to market right after you or something like that, like you might as well just call it quits at that point. That's not going to sustain you long term by keeping your company a secret.
0: There's nothing like the execution, right?
1: Absolutely. It always comes down. Everybody has an idea. It always comes down to execution.
0: Oh, Kevin, before we let you go, you mentioned chairlifts. We talked about skiing before uh, recording. Maybe talk about your hobbies,
1: right? Any, any favorite hobbies? Yeah, absolutely. I love vehicles. I know it's a little bit cliche, but I took the time in the pandemic where I couldn't do a lot of traveling. I became a pilot. I love learning. I love technical aspects and like uh, flying an airplane, both from the engine components and understanding all of that and the aerodynamics has been super fun. So yeah, I, I would say, you know, flying at this point is my my number one hobby. It's where I spend either most of my time on YouTube or anything really, like if I ever get to watch TV or any of that stuff, I'm watching, you know, airplane things.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. And, and I'm sure it came in Very handy during the pandemic, right? Yeah, I've
1: taken a few trips even with my young kids. Um, I've been able to fly from San Mateo to Palm Springs and avoid flying on commercial airliners and all that sort of stuff. So it's actually enabled a little bit of freedom in my life, which has been great.
0: Amazing. Well, Kevin, cannot thank you enough for, for joining us. Super, super interesting, everything you're building. Uh, I know you're already a, a friend of Wharton, but now you're a closer friend of Wharton. So stop by in, in person post pandemic and you know there's a, there's an open invitation there.
1: Thanks so much. Great to meet you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.